does Gussie know? At the end of the play? No, she knows at the end of the play. (laughs) Okay. Does she know before that? Hello, all you discerning podcast listeners, you, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and we are, this is the second episode. I was about to say we're two episodes deep, but that could be misleading in saying right. this is the third episode. This is the second episode mm-hmm. of season three of No Script. Hey, thank you all for tuning in again to another episode. We're excited to get jumping in here and about this this play that we're very excited to get to grapple with. Uh, we've done this play right before, right, Jacob? That's right, yes. In season one, you had a special guest, Karen Baum Barker, and you and Karen discussed a different Jenny Laird play, Sky Girls, uh, which is a play that I like quite a bit that uh, I really hope to be involved in in some way in the future, and a Another really great Jenny Laird play is the play that we're doing today. We are talking about Ballad Hunter. Yeah, Ballad Hunter. I'm very excited to jump into this play. It's got a really kind of beautiful uh, folk music, but also family-themed storyline. I'm, 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 I'm really pumped to get jumping into it. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get there, we do want to ask everybody to please go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can become a supporter of the show for as little as $1 a month, $1 a month. You can support the work that we are doing on No Script. It really helps us out. The The podcast is a labor of love, but it is not free. There are hosting fees. There are, you know, when we can't get the scripts at our local library, we've got to buy them to be able to read them. There's monetary costs associated with doing this work that we are hoping that you all will help us out with. So please go over to patreon.com slash No Script Podcast. Again, for as little as $1 a month, you can help us out. And you then once you become a patron... You'll be able to access patron-only posts and potentially some other special events in the future. So please go on over there, patreon.com slash podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like Jacob said, it's just $1. And while that $1 amount might sound small, that is immensely helpful to us. And it all stacks up. So thank you for checking us out over there. And we will see you over on Patreon. But for now, we're going to hang out with you and talk about this play, Ballad Hunter by Jenny Laird. Um, Just a little bit of context as we're jumping into it. Uh, This play was produced for the first time in March of 2000 at the Chicago Dramatists. Um, It received its premiere there. And uh, it had a kind of a shorter run there. It's been produced in other places, but notably for us, it was produced at our alma mater uh, at Northwestern College before both of our times there. So I sadly have never seen this play live. And uh, yet this play lived on into my experience of college as well. A lot of people in our grades saw it at one point or another during uh, like their visits to campus. And uh, certainly all our upperclassmen were still agog of this play as we came in. So we heard many stories about it 
and I'm excited to get to, to talk over it. Yeah, absolutely. I was a TA for some of my time in college, and one of the projects that I worked on was digitalizing some of the old production photos. And I one of the shows that I did digitalize was Ballad Hunter. And so I got to go through Ooh. some really, really stunning, really beautiful production photos from the show. So that, that was a cool experience to look back on that. At that point, I had read the show, so I knew what I was seeing as well. I'm really excited to talk about Ballad Hunter. It is interesting to me to be doing it after having talked about Intimate Apparel. Those of you who listened through chronologically uh, listened last Monday or whenever to Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage, which is a very specific play about a very specific group of people and their very specific concerns in a very specific location at a very specific point in time. (laughs) And that is so true of Ballad Hunter. There could not be anything more true than the very specificity of the story. This story is set in 1937 in the mountains of uh, Virginia, in the Appalachian Mountains, in a small community, a very remote community, kind of cut off from the rest of the world and the developments that are going on at the time. The plot, as it's written in the script, basically follows uh, a family of three women, a grandmother, a meemaw, a mother, and then her daughter, Lada is the daughter, Gussie is the mother, and um, Hattie, right, is the grandmother. Hetty. Hetty is the grandmother. And these three women live together. They're very, very poor to the point where the next meal is a large question mark. They rely on catching rabbits that live in the area to survive. And there's a lot of secrets. They don't know, at least Lada doesn't know anything about where her father came from. Uh, Hetty keeps implying things kind of throughout the show about who the father may have been and what she thinks about that. There's some something wrong going on in the community where all the rabbits are dying. Add to this two male characters. One, their neighbor, Buzzy, who's a junkyard proprietor, according to the character description. He is disfigured from some ancient accident. We don't know what exactly. He cannot speak and is covered in scars as a result of that. He runs a junkyard very close by to them. In fact, on their property, he purchased the land from Hetty uh, to build his junkyard. We learn that later in the script. The final character who brings in maybe the active plot of what occurs during the script is Cecil. Cecil works for the, uh, something like the Rural Electrification Administration or something, the REA. Uh, Basically, at this point in American history, going through and trying to get electricity out to rural communities by stringing power lines. But in order to do that, these guys from the REA have to go into the communities, convince all the people that they need to sign on, which comes with the monetary cost, so that the government then can afford to pay to put the power lines up and go into the community. Cecil is optimistic. Uh, He is maybe a little ignorant. He believes that the electra, uh, getting electricity out to these communities is for the good of everybody. And we should all just pitch in and do it. And so he comes into this uh, forsaken community in the Appalachian Mountains, thinking that he's going to be able to convince everybody to sign on to this program to get power to their village and he is in for it a little bit especially as he meets the main trio that's kind of the core of the plot from the script or at least a sweeping overview yeah yeah and 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 from from that you can kind of tell that there's a lot of questions from us as the audience as we enter into this play you you meet these characters and they're vibrant characters but there's so much 
uh, prior history that has already happened prior to this play. So much of our role as audience, and sometimes the role of Cecil in the play, is to slowly unpack that information, that history from these characters, and, and decipher what exactly happened in this community and is continuing to happen. Yeah, and the other character that has to do that as well is Lada, right? Lada and That's Cecil true, yeah. end up aligned. Again, Lada's the the youngest of the three women, the daughter, the youngest daughter in the generations. And she does she has not been told very intentionally what happened in the past, who her father is, why there are no men in the community, uh, what has gone on. It's been a constant mystery. Basically, her mother keeps saying, someday I'm going to tell you the story. And Lotta keeps going, is today, someday. And the arrival of Cecil provides her with someone else who also doesn't have this information. And so they become sort of a joined unit in terms of learning the history of their village and their own personal history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, the the uh, Hetty and Gussie kind of serve as these gatekeepers of the information. And they have these conversations. Uh, we start the play, uh, the first major scene of the play, uh, barring kind of a kind of a prologue scene of Lada running around and singing, is Gussie and Hetty talking to each other. And they're they're bringing up stuff that we don't necessarily know a whole lot about. Like they're 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 ribbing each other and they're making fun of each other and they're making accusations against each other. But they're using quite a bit of context that we don't we don't exactly know. We have to unpack it. We have to actively listen to them as they jump into all this stuff. That's right. Yeah, these are very very high context characters. And usually the arrival of a low context character like Cecil into a community of high context characters would be used as a way to provide exposition, right? This person right. needs to understand what's going on. But honestly, I don't really feel like Cecil serves that function. Whether he learns the history of the family or not is sort of beside the point entirely. <laughs> he just sort of happens to be around when Lada learns the information. And that's not to say he's not important. He is the reason why Lada eventually learns the information. But whether or not he actually knows what has gone on doesn't seem to be very crucial as it typically would be for a low context character so that we as the audience can learn it through them. Yeah. So let's 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 provide just a little bit more information around the meeting of Lada and Ray, right? So so Lada is uh this she's this and, like And just to clarify that real quick. So Cecil is the name of the character. Yes. Lada calls him Ray because his shirt uniform says REA, Rural Electrification Administration. So she calls him Ray or Rhea or, you know, who knows exactly how you'd pronounce it. But right, the right. character's name is Cecil, nicknamed Ray or Rhea for the play. Yeah, and we'll probably use those interchangeably. So, so you know, deal with that. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, Lada is this kind of free spirit. She is she she wanders around through the woods all the time. She sings in the woods. She you know says that <laughs> she kind of lies sometimes when she says she hasn't been in the woods. So there's this element of uh, a her family doesn't always believe her necessarily. They they think that she's making up stories sometimes in the woods. Her grandmother uh, Hetty sometimes refer to, refers to her as like a fairy, um, and just and, she's and that's like, a very specific reference to. Yeah. And it's one of those things that there's a double layer. On the on the top layer, she, Hetty's trying to explain 
oh, well, Lada likes to sleep in trees because she's a fairy. She's fun and young and all this stuff. And I think that's, if you've never experienced the story before, that breezes right by you. And then going back for the second reading or seeing the show again or whatever, once you know more about what Hetty thinks, especially about Lada and the nature of her birth, suddenly the accusation that she's a fairy and the a strong reaction from Gussie at the ribbing the, it just makes a lot more sense. Takes on a lot more weight, certainly. And like, yeah, yeah. Because because also, as as what we're going to slowly try to, along with the play, unwrap the complexities of this. So we're starting kind of towards the beginning. But a uh, uh, lot of... As a result of kind of some of this subtext of she's she's always kind of climbing trees, she's singing songs, she's wandering in the woods, uh, she has this kind of fey nature about her. She also has a bit of a physical deformity. She suffers from rickets and has kind of small childlike uh, bone structure. Um, yeah, they're so always all... commenting on how she's small. Um, yeah. And the playwright likes to she, – she doesn't have rickets in that she's really – deformed or uh, you know has grown wrong or anything she's just undersized and at one point she has such a great great line she's talking with Buzzy the the neighbor and she says you know people always tell me I'm small for my age I don't think I'm small maybe for my age I am but for a lot of ages I'm right big (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) yeah it doesn't seem to bug her too much on a personal level but on a on a community level, she is quite ostracized by most people. Um, even her own family unit kind of ostracizes her sometimes. Her mom, uh, uh, Gussie, has kind of this this strange, a uh, couple of strange interactions with her. Hetty refers to her as a fairy sometimes, but more importantly, the community at large really shuns her for some reason that she's not fully aware of. And the whole family. And we say for some reason, because again, that's one of those things that the audience doesn't know or understand at the beginning. All we know is that people don't want to come around. Then we learn that Hetty has to, the grandmother, has to walk miles and miles to meet anybody because nobody's going to come to their house if she ever wants to just be social and hang out with people. Um, And we learn slowly uh, this one of the pieces of information that we have at least some ability to grasp is that there's something to do with the nature of Lada's birth and her father, uh, Gussie's, you know, former lover, I guess, that, that we that we don't understand yet. We know enough to know we don't know something. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's kind of puzzling and you know that something is amiss, but you're not really sure what it is. So so into that, in in that context, she meets Cecil in the forest and she tells other people that she's been seeing men walking through the forest and they don't necessarily believe her all that much. Um, but Cecil, what what's Cecil doing in the woods right right around now as as she meets him? Well, he's been down in the valley getting electricity out to the farmers there, and he has this sort of I don't know, a noble (laughs) view that uh, everybody should be sharing in the goodness of the, of what mankind can provide. Right. Everybody should get electricity. If we're going to run it to the the farming community out in the valley, we should run it up into the mountains, even though these people are poor and have no real use for electricity. Everybody should share in the goodness. So his superiors don't really think that, but he decides to make a bet with his superiors. Basically, I'm going to go up into these small 
small villages where they don't see outsiders hardly ever. I'm going to try to get at least five signatures. If I can do that, then we'll stay around a little longer, try to get more people signed on and try to get electricity up into the mountains. So Cecil is basically wandering up towards these villages, hoping to find people to sign on to the project. Yeah, he's like an altruist who is kind of convicted of the need to bring technological advancement to everyone, that everyone should have access to these things. He he quotes a book that... uh, I forget which book it is exactly, but it was it's the story about uh, maybe I'll find it here in a minute, but I'll, I'll summarize it. It's a story about uh, this person who goes to sleep in, uh, in like the ni- 19 early 1900s and wakes up in 2000, the year 2000. And <laughs> pro- pretty ironically, because the, the play was written in 2000, um, he has, of course, the world is a utopia in 2000 and everyone is uh, is helping each other out and it's all great. And uh, the convicting part of this story for him is he he believes that he cannot just sleep through until 2000 when all this beautiful world is created. He says that he wants to be a part of the creation. And if he's not a part of the creation, what kind of a person is he at all? Um, and so that is, that's, that's what he says at least is a good chunk of his conviction to come up here and bring electricity. Right. And as the, the, I don't know, we haven't revealed so much exactly of what the significance of Cecil's character is in relationship to the family. But basically, he's a strange man who's come out of the woods and has shown interest in one of the three women, in this case, Lada. Whether it's really romantic interest or not, you know, he's quite a bit older than her and he has this other motive of signing the family on to the project. But he that's at least how it's perceived by the family family. Um, and this is worrisome that Lada has now got this guy that she's met, the stranger. She's invited him to dinner. Lada's kind of idea is that she's going to get him hooked up with her mother. Uh, but the, both the mother, Gussie, and the grandmother, Hetty, are worried that Cecil's basically there to take Lada away or to be sort of a stranger coming out of the you know, out of the woodwork. And and the reason why this is so worrisome to them is the, the secrets that we eventually learn later on down the road. When we right. get there, I want us to be able to look back at this moment, though, because it's so yeah. interesting to me that Cecil is a forward-looking character. Not only is he somebody who's bringing electricity and technological advancement to the village, but his very motivation for doing that is based on a book where someone time travels to the future. <laughs> Literally leaves their own time behind to go to the future. I want to note right. that so that when when everyone knows what we're talking about <laughs> and we know, then we can look back at that and do some interesting comparison. Right, 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 right. So we got a couple more beats before we kind of open up the full story. We're we're keeping the mystery at bay for those of you who have have yet to read the script. But uh, we'll we'll get there eventually. But the the couple other big beats in here, or at least the characters that we need to spend some time with, are uh, definitely one of them is Buzzy, who is their next door neighbor. And Buzzy is, uh, as Jacob said, he has uh, some sort of scarring on his face and on his arms, um, likely from some sort of heat or flame or something. Um, and uh, he is he is mute. He is he doesn't uh, speak at all. Um, and and he's this he's this kind of at first you meet him. He's this this silent partner to Lada trying to beg a chicken off of him. <laughs> Um, and, and it's this, uh, there's a couple interactions throughout the play. Almost all the characters, I think with the exception of Hetty, have like pretty, a 
a considerable amount of just monologuing to Buzzy in this play. Yeah, they all end up monologuing, even Hetty, although hers is not as long. And that really is an interesting, just structural function of Buzzy. Not, not not only does he play a fairly significant role in the story, but just in terms of how to use a character like Buzzy as just a playwriting tool to put a character on stage that another character cannot have a conversation with but still wants to communicate causes that person to do a lot more talking than they're potentially used to, holding up both sides of the conversation, making assumptions about what they see in that character's physical reactions to things. And we learn some interesting stuff about the characters that we wouldn't all maybe get from conversation. Things like why Cecil is doing what he's doing, why he's pursuing this electrification project. Uh, we learn Lotta starts talking, you know, Lotta talks a lot to everybody, but especially to Buzzy, she reveals stories and little tidbits of things that she has learned about her past so that we're able to more fully understand what exactly she knows and what the limits to her knowledge actually are. Yeah, and, and kind of the... The uh, how she feels those things, too, because a lot of times when she's talking, uh, especially Lada, when she's talking to Gussie, she's kind of burying it under this this performance of she she needs something from Gussie. She wants the story eventually. And and also Gussie has this weird, not weird, this this uh, this front that she puts on in front of Lada, this this uh, defense against her that she's working up against. But whenever Lada is talking to Buzzy, there there isn't any of that. She just kind of is stream of conscience with him, <laughs> and and you get to you get to hear a lot of kind of the sub motivations of her as well. Yeah, and I think that the other characters follow a similar pattern because there's no need to engage in the back and forth of conversation, the listening and responding. There's a level of guard that they end up letting down and letting things sort of spill out. You know, Hetty absolutely hates Buzzy. She thinks he's cursed <laughs> the mountain. She thinks he's the re he's the reason why all the rabbits are dying. She calls him a mongrel. She doesn't want anything to do with him even when he's offering yeah. them money and food and all this stuff. Really despises him. But basically every time she interacts with him, she ends up kind of softening a little bit. Because mm -hmm. I think it's that same world, that world where suddenly you're confronted with the need to fill the void with words and something spills out. A guard is let down, even in someone <laughs> like Hetty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, now all this is not to say that Buzzy is an easy role to play. Like, I know some of you are in your mind saying like, oh, good, a character without any lines. Great. I think that makes Buzzy even more hard to play <laughs> in this play. Because uh, you're one of these scenes, Cecil talks to him for four pages in my script. And at four solid pages, <laughs> Cecil is talking to Buzzy. And, and, and that is a challenge for any actor, to be actively listening for four solid pages is is quite the thing. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and just, just the, the level that you have to shepherd the story with that is just as high in my opinion. Right. And as we've noted, Buzzy is not a throwaway character. Nah. He has active things to do in terms of progressing the story. He has a really detailed, rich character history and um, uh, given circumstances that an actor has to somehow play without the benefit of being able to say anything. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, and interact with characters. Yeah, absolutely. And he just, and he, throughout the play, he kind of pops up in these weird kind of caretaker roles. We find out that Buzzy has been a part of this family for a long time. Uh, even even kind of since, since Lana was a baby, he's been around. Right, yeah, we learned that he showed up shortly after Lana was born when she was very mm-hmm. little. Um, for those of you who are naturally suspicious, you have a right to be. <laughs> That's a very Convenient. suspicious thing to learn. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. But that, that, uh, then also Lotta named him. She, she was responsible for naming him Buzzy because she, while she was like falling asleep when she was a little girl, uh, heard, uh, him like singing lullabies outside her window and, uh, in his kind of raspy, uh, humming voice, it sounded like a bunch of buzzing outside the window. Correct again, suspicious listener. That is also <laughs> a suspicious thing to learn. <laughs> you sure lucky in people, you. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he's an integral character. He plays a lot of uh, a visible help within the play, but also invisible help. Through some of the arguments, we find out that Gussie knows that that Buzzy has been helping out their family for a long time. Yeah, you um, mentioned that he was a caretaker, so he shows up shortly after Lada's born, and through the play we learn that he's been taking care of the family in small ways. He's not the breadwinner or anything. He's ostracized, uh, not in quite the same way Lada is, but uh, Buzzy's ostracized from everybody. He's not only a stranger, he didn't grow up in the town, but also he's got these you know terrible burns that cover him, make him unrecognizable, he can't speak, and there's something very odd about an outsider at all to this community of people. So he lives in this junkyard where he doesn't really sell anything, we don't think. And he kind of secretly, quietly, in fact, I think we're meant to believe he does it thinking no one knows it's him. He does things like cut wood for them in the winter and leave it on the porch, uh, bring them food to the point where when, when he brings over things like a weather vane or a chicken plucked for dinner, some of the characters go, what is Buzzy doing? But Gussie goes, oh yeah, here we go again. He's helping us out again. Like he does all the time. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And that, and that's, that's met mostly from uh, Hetty with some degree of, she, like like Jacob said, she's just like brutal to him through most of the play. <laughs> um, uh, despite despite the fact that Gussie is aware and thanks him for it, but she, she got, uh, at least for the most of the play, Hetty believes that he is the cause of all this curse that is going around. So so she is yeah. So so he again he's like integrally worked in, but this like kind of under the radar character for a good chunk of the show. Yeah, until he's not. Until he's not. So, <laughs> so as a way to kind of edge us just a little bit closer to uh, revealing the secrets of, of the play, um, what are some ways that the secret is negotiated around during the play? Um, what, what ways do the characters either uh, uh, kind of uh, politically or diplomatically maneuver around each other throughout the play? Right. I mean, the first and and perhaps most obvious way, if you're reading through the second time, is the way that uh, Gussie and Hetty talk about the past when they're alone in the room. Again, because they're such high contact characters, context, sorry, they're saying things that if this is your first time through the story, you're not necessarily going to catch. For example, um, at one point, 
I think it's Hetty, is talking about, yeah, it has to be Hetty. She's talking about all these rumors that are circulating about Buzzy. All this crazy stuff that's ha- that she they believe happened. It's ridiculous stuff. Like he chopped up his mother and threw all her body parts all over and didn't give her a decent burial. Crazy stuff. And basically, Gussie's response is, that's ridiculous. Those rumors are ridiculous. And then she says this. Oh, an idle mind is the devil's plaything. She's trying to communicate. These people are bored. They don't have anything to do. There's no work. There's no food. So they're just making up stories. And Hetty's response is, well, you would know. <laughs> now, yeah. that you're, that's going to pass right by you if you don't know the end of this play and thus the, the history of what is going on between those two women. When you know the history of what's gone on between those two women in the town, suddenly that line means a lot. It's a It's a dig. A deep one, a painful one. Yeah, yeah. So many accusations within this play are couched within that context. So so then to turn it around, Gussie also blames uh, Hetty throughout the play of not listening to her family, not trusting people. And and, uh, that that lack of trust... Can can have serious ramifications, and of course, this is this is also all embedded in 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 her story and the past and and what we are eventually working towards. But all of this stuff is wrapped up and uh, thrown in each other's faces every so often in offhand comments and comments that are easy to kind of walk by or or blaze by, whether you're reading it or watching it for the first time. But like Jacob said, he's exactly right. The second time through, either reading or watching this play, you just begin to see all these little pings of when the story is being talked about that you didn't necessarily pick up before. The play is absolutely rich with given circumstances and character history. It is so well written in terms of people who have had a full heartbreaking life trying to live together. But I'm not sure that in your first encounter with the story, I think it's, you know, that old poster of the iceberg. You only catch the very tip and only through re-experiencing the story. I've read it many times now uh, in preparation for this podcast. Only through re-experiencing the play do you catch this behemoth of beautiful writing underneath Mm-hmm. Yeah, this like undercurrent. And and you kind of get the unnerving feeling, you know, like like a folktale. You get the unnerving feeling, even the first time that you read it, that there's some undercurrent to all of this. And you just you just don't know what it is. But but then like it's it it becomes revealed and you get to you see it through the through to the end, and then you're like, okay, I I, I want to hear that story again. <laughs> so so it's 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 riveting in that way. Yeah, I mean it's it's ballad like in that way. You know, a ballad is sort of a simple, easy to digest story, uh, story song that you follow through. It tells you about something. It maybe doesn't even seem all that complicated your first time listening. But the richness and the beauty of ballads is that as you re-experience them, you discover a complex web of beautiful, not only writing on the English language level, which is true of this play, but also in the story sense, which is true of this play. Yeah, absolutely. So, so then we got, what what else we got? What other, what other hints do we have along the way? There is. Well, and and again, because, because the audience doesn't know if they haven't read it, what's coming yet. They also probably don't know that, that, that the secret that's revealed is a twofold secret. Uh, yep. There's a, a community level 
tragic event that happened that we, along with Lada and Cecil, don't know anything about. And then there's a familial, personal event, the tragic event that happened that we, along with Lada and Cecil, don't know about. Those two things are totally, absolutely connected, although only two characters of the five understand really how they're connected. So one of the ways that the more community tragic experience that we learn about is through the negotiation of the miner's lamp. Yeah. Yeah. Objects in general have a pretty high value in this play. Uh, The negotiation over them is is pretty pretty uh, pronounced, but the miner's lamp is this this kind of odd prop that is called for in, in the house, in, in Gussie and Hetty's house, that is repeatedly either kind of touched at different moments, adjusted, and then adjusted back, um, referred to, uh, picked up, and uh, and there's, there is some uh, negotiation over it as well. Uh, uh, Hetty will touch it, and then Gussie, Gussie will move it again. That that sort of stuff. Yeah, and then, it it feels to me almost like the way you would use a prop like that in a novel. Mm. Do you have that sense, or like an actual story told rather than a play? There's the sense of like when the characters are talking about something significant, something that even the audience starts to go, "Oh, they're talking about something," but I don't know what it is. They start to mess around with this lantern, move it, turn it, as you said, and you can I can almost imagine the writing of some great novelist as they write yeah. about you know Hetty at the sink adjusting the lantern as she thinks about her lost husband. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's this kind of this almost betrayal of subconscious in that moment. Um, and and yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly is is uh, it stirs up images of like a classic novel or something like that, because I mean, it is so it is so tied to the story. I mean, you, you can start to pick up where we're going. This miner's lantern is is in this in this cottage and it's not it's not necessarily being used. I don't think I don't I don't see a lot of. I don't know that that maybe isn't that important, but regardless, it's 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 ever present. It, you get the sense that it's it's a focal point of this room. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and other props similarly kind of carry through. We probably don't have time to talk about all of them. Um, the the major beats of the story, like we've said, is that Lada meets Cecil in the woods. She invites him to dinner. Lada's hoping that. Cecil will uh, fall in love with her mother and then because they're married she's hoping that the community stigma against her and her family which she doesn't understand will go away. Cecil is hoping to sell the family on joining the electrification project for his own supposedly noble reasons. Uh, Gussie and Hetty are surprised that there's a strange man at their door um, and, and basically tensions erupt as the level of concern gets heightened knowing that Lada has been talking with a strange man in the woods for reasons that they will eventually learn. Yeah. And there's a couple uh, main triggers that uh, that happen to make that upset happen. Uh, she comes in and says that uh, she's she's met the man in the woods and uh, she, she's talking to her mom and her mom notices she has a ribbon in her hair. Now, in the scene before, Cecil had uh, tied uh, one of his ribbons. He's marking trees to be cut down. Um, and he ties up her hair with one of the uh, ribbons that he uses for that. She notices the ribbon in her hair. Um, she asks, uh, Gussie asks, Lada, were you singing in the woods? Lada says, yes, I was. And I met this man who has boots that smell like ashes and death. 
And uh, so so all of this starts to happen, and uh, Gussie runs out in the middle of kind of this preparation. She's preparing this uh, chicken for dinner, and Gussie runs out into the woods. Having taken the ribbon with her, and yeah, she's yep. very concerned about why there's this ribbon in her hair for some reason. Um, Cecil shows up for dinner. She, uh, Hetty, immediately is sort of suspicious, but kind of warms up to his sort of um, inviting, friendly nature. Right, uh, they, right. They kind of start to get ready for dinner, and Gussie stumbles in, her mouth covered in purple blackberry juice. She's sort of disoriented and dizzy, and uh, uh, Hetty sends Cecil and Lotta out onto the porch while she and she kind of deals with Gussie, gets her ready, tries to explain what, you know, you have to let Lotta have this. I know that it's upsetting to you, but it's her night. She's brought him home for dinner. We have to do our best to take care of him and be kind, etc. Yeah. So, so so it's just this this tense family moment back and forth. We're not going to recap everything for you. This all begins to unwrap throughout the evening. The kind of big the big uh kind of hitch in the railroad track. Gussie uh, continues to be uh terse and uh, combative towards uh Cecil throughout the evening. And uh, eventually he gets up and leaves. Um, he, 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 he discovers that he doesn't have his cigarettes. He's kind of getting, <laughs> in general, his sales pitch goes very poorly. Um, he thinks that he can convince, uh, all of these women to get electricity simply on the virtues of a clothing iron. And that just does not go well for him. <laughs> yeah, and he has other misunderstandings about how poor the community really is. Like at yeah. one point he's like, well, you can get a fridge f- so you can put all your food in it. And there's this kind of just heartbreakingly awkward moment where they go, what food? Food? What food? We don't have food (laughs) to put in a fridge. And you realize he's in over his head a little bit. Right. He's, he in general just gets in way over his head over and over. And in fact, the next scene, he goes out to try to get uh, his cigarettes back, which he discovers he left at uh, Buzzy's in an earlier scene at the junkyard. And he kind of goes up to Buzzy. He found his cigarette packages and he's like, you you knew that I was going to walk in there and they were just going to blow me out of the water, didn't you, man? <laughs> he kind of blames Buzzy for that. But he gets to the point that he's like, I just I just really we're <laughs> we're, we're giving him a lot of credit. Uh, I just really want these people to to have electricity. And so he works out this complex plan to give money to Buzzy for something in his junkyard so that Buzzy will give money to the family so that they can buy electricity. Right. And this is one of those moments of, I think, genius in the play, because we think, along with Cecil living in the moment, that him handing Buzzy the $5, the $5, because that's more money than we've seen through the whole play, more money than we've even heard any of these people have. If this $5 becomes such a huge thing. Oh, he's going to give away $5 and Buzzy's going to get it to the family and they're going to get electricity. And Cecil's just looking for something to trade for the $5. So he picks up the mandolin. At that point, the $5 becomes as unimportant as any of the rest of the junk in Buzzy's junkyard. The key prop is the mandolin. And the mandolin strikes forward virtually everything else that happens the rest of the play. But it's this crazy switcheroo where the prop that you think is going to be weighted so significantly, the money becomes worthless paper in terms of the story. The mandolin, a a stringless mandolin uh, that's old and beat up that he's found hidden kind of in the back of the junkyard becomes the thing. 
So Cecil's over in the junkyard because he's been thrown out of the house basically after trying to pitch them on electricity. Gussie's basically said things like, we don't want anything you stranger have to give. Get on out of here, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Lada has run away trying to find Cecil. She doesn't think to go to the junkyard for some reason. Um, And Hetty's gone for, for something. I forget exactly, but eventually Cecil comes back to the house with the mandolin and finds Gussie, who's hated him because he's this stranger and he, you know, with her daughter. He's come back to the house with the mandolin. And that strikes forward a little bit in their relationship. What goes on between them and the mandolin? Yeah, so so uh, so he comes back in with the mandolin, and he thinks it's a banjo. Um, so he's 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 kind of holding it, and he he enters into the space, and right away, uh, Gussie identifies with the uh, with the mandolin. She's like, "Oh my goodness, that is really beautiful!" And can can I hold it for a minute? And she kind of holds it. She kind of cradles it and uh, explains to him that it is a mandolin. Um, and she very clearly like knows knows and loves uh, maybe not this particular instrument, but the mandolin in general. That's right. And that causes their relationship to be refreshed a little bit. It gives her a softer view of him that he's willing to just give her the mandolin, which he does. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, everyone comes back to the house and Gussie's kind of been calmed down a little bit, restored a little bit by the presence of the mandolin. So they set out to eating and cooking the food and set settling down to dinner. Um, somebody says, well, we should go invite Buzzy since it was his chicken that we're eating anyway. Buzzy walks in the door and sees that Cecil has given the mandolin to Gussie. He, 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 there's an odd stage direction about how he gives Cecil a mean look. Somehow, yeah. somehow yep. Gussie ending up with the mandolin was not supposed to be the plan. I'm not totally sure why, even knowing the end of the play. Um, <laughs> but Buzzy trades the $5 for the mandolin Hetty explodes about the devil's money and the mongrel in our house. Get out of here, you garbage, crappy, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Buzzy goes running. Gussie goes after him. Everybody's upset. And this causes the first major revelation of secrets. Because basically Cecil says, I I think I can fix this problem. I think I know you've all had these, you know, it's just I want to free up your ability to make choices. And after this crazy sequence of events, Hetty's monologue where she reveals this first piece of secret is basically we don't have any choices in our life. And what does she reveal? Yeah, well, she says it wasn't always like this here. Like you, you come up here and you think that we're, you know, these kind of like, like this is what we chose or something like that. This is not what we chose life to be like up here. This used to be a mining town. And uh, she tells the story about how uh, all the all the town was working in the mine and stuff like that. And it was a great town. She had people over. She had friends that would stop by the house and they'd hang out and talk. And then uh, this new uh, manager for the mining company came and he was allied to a union and he started convincing everyone about how uh, how the union unionizing and and working for 27 I think 27 percent more for for a raise was going to be so great and uh, he got everyone to such a state that they like ordered a big feast on a Sunday and they're like okay after we finish this feast let's go into the mine and show them how much more we can work when there's the promise of good wages for us and so everyone had this huge feast everyone celebrated and they went down into the mine and during that day there was some calamity happened in the mine it's not specific what it was whether it was an explosion or a collapse or something but everyone that they know of died in the mine 
Yeah, and so that's why there aren't any men in the village. And this piece of news is something that has been kept from Lada. How exactly it's been kept from Lada, I have no idea. Because she does go to school. We know that she goes to school. So even though they're a little bit shunned by the community for reasons we will learn, I don't know how Lada has never learned this. It's, it's, that one's a little bit odd to me. Has the whole community decided, decided not to tell her? It's like one of those, I mean... It, well, while I do think it is a little a little uh, unlikely that it would have happened, you can't imagine a situation where a community just would like lock that down and just like be in mourning of that information for for not that long for fourteen years, um, during which only like eight of those she would have been paying attention <laughs> during school. It's a bit of a stretch, but but it's conceivable. <laughs> so, Hetty reveals this crucial piece of information, and then. Again, sort of, I don't know. She has a change of heart about Buzzy. Again, she's interacting. And they all, her and Cecil and um, Lotta, go off to try to find Buzzy to feed him. Meanwhile, well, there's... That, that, that just real quick is one of the crucial kind of flips. The One of the big reasons why Hetty decides to like uh, uh, Buzzy, or at least be more open to him, is she discovers Cecil confesses that he is the reason why the rabbits are dying. <laughs> Oh, that, that's right. You're right. Yeah. That, we reveal the actual cause of the curse. Yeah. So in, in, what, in what is surely just the nail in the coffin of Cecil's pitch, uh, someone, I think Lotta spots another dead rabbit outside and Hetty goes off again and is like, ah, Buzzy's killing the rabbits again. This is awful. The curse is on this mountain. We're all going to die. The food source is running out. And Cecil is just kind of saying every once in a while, man, I, I told them to stop doing that. That's, I'll, I'll tell them to stop doing that. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And he said, well, all of my camping buddies who aren't used to being out here in the wild, you Use this poison to keep the mountain lions and wolves at bay. The only reason we had it was to try to keep the rats out of the supplies. So they had set out poison around their campsite and the rabbits had eaten the poison, brought it home to like their, you know, little baby rabbits and started all dying as a result of the poison. Yeah, so that's revealed. They go off to find Buzzy. Meanwhile, we have a scene between Gussie and Buzzy. They've run off again after Buzzy was chased off, and they're talking about the mandolin, and Gussie's apologizing for what happened at dinner, and they're sort of smiling and mostly interacting with the mandolin. Uh, meanwhile, during that scene between the two of them, <laughs> Cecil and Lotta have a scene. They're supposed to be bringing Buzzy food where they're at Buzzy's house and they end up eating these blackberries and they do it in a way that blackberries get stained all over their face. And Cecil carves a carving of what Lotta's father is supposedly supposed to look like. Uh, yeah. Cecil never having met him is just carving. But Lotta says, oh, carve me my dad so I can have him with me. And he, and he agrees to do that and does that. Eventually, everybody ends up back at the house for the final explosion. It's a beautiful... And the only reason why we're doing this much detail into the plot yeah. is that the layering is gorgeous. It is incredible layering what causes this final explosive bit of information to be revealed. We've talked about where all the characters are, where they've come from, what they're doing. They all end up back at the house. What happens? Yeah, so, well, uh, so Lada and Cecil come back and they're covered in these black, in like blackberry juice because they kind of get into like a, a food fight almost <laughs> at one point. And uh, so they come back and they're covered over in blackberry juice and she runs, uh, Lada runs up to 
Gussie and says, look, look, he, he made me a, a carving of my dad. And uh, do you, or do you, first, first she says, do you recognize this? And Gussie says, yeah, yeah, of course I recognize it. And Lada's mind is blown. She's like, wow, he really carved a picture of my dad. And Gussie says, well, this looks like, this looks exact, exactly like Buzzy. That's awesome that you, you carved this, this picture of Buzzy. And Lada like begins to get just completely freaked out by that. She doesn't really want it to be Buzzy. She wants it to be her dad. And uh, so that starts the spiral of, of emotions. And so Lotta has a basically a temper tantrum of a 14-year-old girl. And she, in the temper tantrum, you know, in sort of a talk back to her mother way, says, well, I learned about the mines today, what happened in the mines. So that sets Gussie off. Lotta was not supposed to know that. Gussie yells for Hetty to come out of the house, get out here, explain to me what happened. In the meantime, Gussie notices that Lotta and Cecil are covered in this purple blackberry juice. That sets off Gussie. Several times throughout the play, blackberries have come up. We know there's something with blackberries, not to mention the part where Gussie stumbles in as if she's drunk, covered in blackberries herself. Yep. Then, (laughs) setting all of that up, Gussie basically says, well, you knew about the mines. You're covered in blackberries. You're talking back. You don't know. You're not being careful. You're going to get torn away by this person. Okay, fine. Here's what you need to know. And in a heart-wrenching moment, Lotta says, I don't want to hear it like this. I don't want it like this with you upset, with me upset. I don't want it as revenge or punishment. I don't want it like this. The thing she's been after the whole play, the truth of what happened. Why don't people like me? Where's my dad? What are you and Hetty all sad about all the time? Why is the village so poor? What is all this information? I've been after it the whole play, but in the final moment where she's going to get it, it's in such a way that she doesn't even want it anymore. Right. And is that not just oof? Yeah, it's like the, the, be, the be careful what you wish for. And then Gussie's reply is something along the lines of like, you don't get to choose how it happens. So, so yeah, absolutely. It's this, 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 you, you get into it and you feel both immensely curious, but also you kind of reflect what Lada is doing. This, this is like, no, no, no. Well, and it's a sense hear. of like, oh, it's finally going to happen now. And given how everybody's reacting, we know it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. I think Lada yeah. has always held on to the idea that there might be like a good story. Uh, in fact, at the beginning, she even talks about a story so happy it makes you sad. Isn't that right. why you're sad, mom? And mom kind of says, sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's why I'm sad. <laughs> uh, but when yep. we get to the final point where it's going to be revealed, everybody, including Lada, realizes this is not going to be a story so happy it makes you sad. It's a sad story. Right. And the story is that on the day of the the explosion at the mines, a man came out of the woods and said he was a ballad hunter. And he was collecting old songs from this part of the country to write down in a book before they're lost. He listens to Gussie sing when she was a young woman. Uh, they get friendly. Uh, you know, he apparently she's such a great singer and he's so charming and such a great young writer that they... Uh, you know, they, they, they have it. They do it. They, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I, look, they have sex, right? Yeah. They, they do. They're strangers. They do. And then he goes off. The ballad hunter says, I'm going to be right back. I'm going to come back for you because you're a ballad. You're wild and crazy. You're a ballad. I'm coming back for you. And he goes down to the mines to hear the men saying the songs that they wouldn't want to sing at home. 
Well, once he goes off, the explosion or the accident or whatever it is down at the mines occurs, and she never sees him again. She's the only one who ever saw him. And actually, the information that he goes down to the mine is a secret only she knows and one other person. Um, that, that is new information to Hetty, who learns that at that moment as well. But the, the reason why everybody's been so freaked out is because Gussie is the only person to ever see the ballad hunter. She got pregnant that day and had a child that has this uh, physical uh, problem, right? The rickets, uh, mm-hmm. and the child that was conceived on the day of the explosion at the mines, the community, including Hetty, has believed that there was no ballad hunter at all, that in fact, Gussie was visited by the devil. Yeah. And that Lada is the devil's child, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that the devil effectively killed all the, the, the men of the village. That this 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 moment was what the, the kind of turning moment for their community, and it all centered around Gussie. Um, and then is personified in Lada. So we start to realize why all the shunning has been happening. All the connection points begin to ping through our minds. The times when uh, a Blackberries set off Gussie. Uh, the, she also mentions that he tied her hair up with a ribbon. Um, the, the ballad hunter did. So all of these moments begin to come back up and you begin to see the different, uh, the, the different touch points of the story and how it's affected them throughout just the small amount of time we've been with them. Right. And the revelation of the fact that the ballad hunter went down to the mines and may have died along with the rest of the men causes some healing between Gussie and Hetty in a way that is not immediately obvious if you haven't read it multiple times or paid a lot of attention. Hetty is really, through the whole play, this history of having lost her husband and all the men of the village to the mine has has been with her. You know, she carries this lantern along with her. It's a physical weight in her. And so now that it's been revealed at this climactic moment that Gussie also lost her man to the mine, this suddenly heals a lot of their relationship. Suddenly Hetty is able and willing to believe that there really was a ballad hunter that existed. She's willing to accept Gussie into the sort of the clan of women who lost their men to that, that mine accident that day. The dating walk comes fairly quickly after that. Basically, because now Hetty knows that it wasn't the devil who visited her that day, that he- that Gussie also <laughs> lost a man, she needs to go around and tell everybody that that's the truth. She's got to go spread this new story around so that the right. community stops shunning Gussie, I guess. Um, and so Hetty basically says, all right, Cecil, you come along with me. You can pitch the lightning and the, uh, the electricity as I talk. You come with me. Yeah. Basically, we'll do two in one, two birds with one stone. I'll tell the new information, you pitch the electricity. Let's go. So they take off. Lada and Gussie have sort of a a mother-daughter moment where, you know, there's this moment of we're still, I still love you. I know what happened now. I'm so glad you told me. And then Lada goes off with them. And the final image of the play is Buzzy, who has been around comes, uh, he's not been around during the revealing of all this information, but he was at the house for a while and then left for that and now has come back at the very end of the play. Describe for us, Jackson, what happens at the end. Well, yeah, it's this beautiful scene because there's been only one other time in the play that we've heard Gussie sing. 
Um, and it's and it's back. Uh, she's getting ready for. She's preparing supper. She's got the chicken or something like that. She's getting supper ready, and she's singing. She's by herself in the house, and so she's singing. And she apparently has a beautiful voice still to this day, both in her story of her in the past and in the present. She sings this beautiful song, and it's the Devil's Nine's Questions, which is a through line. It's this beautiful folk ballad that's kind of a call and response. You must answer my questions nine. Sing ninety nine and ninety, or you're not gods. You're one of mine, and you are the Weaver's Bonnie. And then it just continues that kind of form. What's the question? What is whiter than uh, milk? Uh, uh, what is and what is purer than X? Um, and then the answer comes back: snow is whiter than milk. That sort of thing. So she starts singing this kind of beautiful ballad, and uh, she's singing. She uh, is kind of standing there, and up comes Buzzy, who uh, walks up. He listens to her sing, and. Uh, the first, I believe the first thing he does, he kind of sets down what he's carrying and he takes the ribbon off of her neck oh, that she... Uh, real quick, though, we should pause. Yeah, I should yeah. set this up for you. So yeah, as yeah. <laughs> Gussie is explaining what happened with this ballad hunter, she talks about how when he first met her, he took the ribbon out of her hair. He uh, fed her blackberries. He touched her on the cheek or the neck or something. And so she describes all these specific physical things that he did when he met her. So mm-hmm. now we fast forward many, many years. Buzzy <laughs> is with her very at the very end. What does he do? Yeah, he comes up with uh, carrying a pail. Uh, he he touches her hair and then pulls it back and ties it with a ribbon that she's been wearing around her neck. The, um, the ribbon that she got from Lada, that Lada got from Cecil. It's that same ribbon that stayed through. Again, one of those props that becomes infused mm-hmm. with a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah. And, and then... There's kind of a moment of silence, and this is this is this is like the resonant moment of the play. <laughs> so, like as you do this, as you envision this, this moment has to take a minute because there isn't again. Buzzy is he has no lines. He is mute. Um, they they stare at each other for a moment. She touches her throat and almost I'm I'm reading the stage directions at this point. Almost laughing a relieved laughter, he hangs his head. She takes a berry and she feeds him one and he rests his head on her lap. And then she continues the song. So Buzzy is the ballad hunter, right? Right. He is Lada's father. (laughs) He, this is what is revealed in the final image of the play. You might, that is one of those things that you might be able to discover as the play goes on, or at least suspect. I remember a a production of a different play I saw at the American College Theater Festival one time where similarly the the final crucial moment of the play is a revelation. And it's one of those things that I kind of suspected as it went on. I couldn't prove because the information hadn't been given to me, but I I had a feeling that it was coming. You can certainly have that in your experience with the play. But the, the, the revelation that Buzzy is and has been the ballad hunter all along is what is supposed to be this final moment, this final image, this final experience of the play. And yeah. what a joyous one, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I mean, and it's one that I at least was not expecting. When I when I read it, it, it feels like the play is like building to this beautiful climax. Everyone's happy. We're going to go tell the story and get electricity to everyone. Wahoo! And we're all, we all have kind of unburdened ourselves of the past. We're all on the same playing field now. Maybe things will be okay. Right? Like that, that feels like the end of the play. And then she's left singing there, and then there's more somehow. There's more of a revelation to be had. And that revelation is that 
Buzzy has been there the whole time. And and some and it's this it's this physical deformity, this this uh not deformity, even this this injury on him that has kind of kept him from being able to tell anyone about it. And and yet the presence was still felt by the family. You see like one last knot kind of finally be tied at the end of the play. And it is such kind of a joyous discovering of what that is. I want to ask you a question, Jackson. It's a question that I thought I knew the answer to. And then I changed my mind. And then I decided that I have no idea. So <laughs> does Gussie know at the end of I, the play? No, well, she knows at the end of the play. <laughs> okay. Does she know before that? I thought, I mean, the first couple times that I experienced the play, I just assumed that Gussie had known the whole time. That she's mm. been sort of keeping that in, hidden in her, that the ballad hunter has been around this whole time, that he's been around to be a, sort of as he could be a father to Lada and engaged, even though the community doesn't really want him around. Yeah, yeah. And then recently, in the past couple readings of the play, I've become less and less sure of that. Yeah. To the point where now I would say, I don't really know. And I might be overthinking it, but I'm really not sure that she actually knows. I don't think that she does. Uh, my reading of it uh, 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 does not does not. I don't think that she does. What what it would take is is detailed analysis of the scenes before because the the biggest pivot point for me is her fear earlier on in the play, or not her fear, her kind of excitement that maybe the ballad hunter is back. Um, she she runs off when Gus when uh when Lada comes back and uh, has the ribbon in her hair is talking about singing in the woods and this person coming up to her and tying up her hair in ribbons and uh, his boots smell of ashes and death. Um, so so there's this and then Gussie runs out of the house and goes into the woods. She ties the ribbon around her neck. She comes back covered over in blackberry stains. So I I think that moment is kind of showing her almost succumbing to the myth. That but they, where does she, she says she finds the blackberries in a blackberry bush, but then later on, Buzzy's got a bucket full of blackberries. So true. where <laughs> did she really go to get those blackberries? If I had to explain away that moment, sure. that would be one interesting question I would have. The other thing is that, man, it's awful convenient that she just happens to be so defensive of Buzzy to everyone's accusations if she really sure, doesn't sure. know that it's him. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I, she I, always says, I have a feeling that he's never really left, that he's never really gone. And you <laughs> could either play that like she really does have this feeling that's unexplainable or she's trying to say something without saying it. Mm-hmm. But th so then how do you explain the scene that they have alone, though? And their kind of talk is when when she follows him out after after uh, Hetty harangues him and they have that scene with the mandolin together how does that one work out then because they're, they're all by themselves there no there's no pretense there i wondered the same thing but but and, and, but it took this realization for me to understand what their relationship really would be like because imagine what their relationship is Imagine a ballad hunter comes out of the wood, they're strangers, he listens to her sing, they sleep together, he wanders off, and all the men in the village die. Later on, nine months later, after Lada has been born, he wanders back into their lives horribly disfigured from a terrible accident and cannot speak anymore. I can't imagine that, you know, I think what we would hope from that is that 
their relationship is that they've continued to build a relationship and now they're comfortable around each other. But really, these are two strangers. They hardly ever interact, even though he lives in their yard. We know that he's shy around her still. So this sense that they're finally alone together talking about this mandolin for the first time in years is not at all bizarre to me. They don't have a relationship. They met for like three hours. And then suddenly he fathered a child and decided to stay around injured. I mean, that that in itself is a very interesting relationship to decide what would those encounters actually be like. And the mm-hmm. sort of awkward fumbling, we're finally talking, and now we can't get over the subject that there's this mandolin that that is finally forcing us to confront this history <laughs> is there. Yep. On the other side of it, why does she not why do they not know what happened at the mine if it's true that the ballot hunters that they've known about the ballot hunter all along right assuming yeah. that the injuries came from the mine which i don't i mean that's what they think but we don't know and certainly buzzy doesn't tell us right yeah i <laughs> yeah i think i mean uh, well, honestly well, buzzy wouldn't be I'll able say. to tell you yeah. i think that i am fighting uphill I am trying to defend what I assumed was the case for a long time (laughs) and what I'm now beginning to realize might not be the case. Ultimately, I'm not sure I know one way or the other what Gussie knew and exactly when she learns it. And when does she learn it if she didn't know? Is it not Mm -hmm. until that final beat? Is it with the revealing of the mandolin that she says, oh, that's his mandolin. Where did this mandolin come from? Oh, it's Buzzy's. Oh, is that where that comes from? I'm mm-hmm. not sure exactly when she would discover it along the course of the play either. Right, right. And I, I mean, at this point, like I, I'm, <laughs> like we said earlier, at this point, I, I'm, my mind is kind of trying to wrap around all these details. I'm like, dang it, I got to read this play again. That's, um, that's, exa- <laughs> that's the experience of Ballad Hunter, I think. Yeah. Every time I read this play, I like it more. Mm-hmm. Every time I read it, I discover something new and beautiful in the layering. Here's something yeah. I discovered just on the, the the last layering. I love the the differences and the similarities between Cecil and the Ballad Hunter. This is bringing mm. you back to what I wanted yeah, you yeah, all yeah, to yeah. note at the beginning, right? Because the play has two men in it. Both men are strangers that appear out of the woods and form a relationship with one of the women in this family. But how, at that level, right, they, they are very similar structurally. But how different of men could they possibly be? Cecil is about the future, technology, right, bringing something new to the village. The ballad hunter exists literally to record the history of the village. (laughs) That's his job, to write it down and keep looking backwards at these old ballads. I mean, how beautiful is that? Like it's it's symmetry, but symmetry in opposite directions. Like you know? bookmarks almost, or, right, or, yes. or bookends in the opposite yes, direction. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That 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 symmetry is is beautiful, and, and and like we're saying, I mean, we're we're starting to run out of time, but like we're saying, there's just so much in this play that that you get to unpack and 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 grapple with and and reread and overread. It's like it's like uh. It's like a tapestry almost. You see different threads each time that you read it. Yeah, it's a ballad. It's a piece of folk art. It's so deep, so complex, so beautiful for what seems like uh, fairly simple at its its early onset. I'm not, you know, in all frankness, I do not think in your first encounter with the play, you will think that much of it. That might just be me leaning onto you what I thought. 
but that's my own weakness because as I experience the play again and again and again, I discover its rich, rich beauty. Yeah. And, and honestly, that might be why the play received fairly mediocre reviews. We didn't mention that during our context, but maybe we should have. But the play is not always very well reviewed. It mm-hmm. kind of gets so-so reviews when it's played. And the plays from back in the early 2000s, those reviews are kind of along the same lines. And I think it might be because the play is so much deeper than it really maybe seems right away. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And people don't like having questions at the end. There's like, so many I, questions. There's so <laughs> many questions. That's But that's like part of the fun for me, at least, is this play gives you the chance to go out to a coffee shop or a pub after you're done and talk about what you think happened and then get excited enough about the fact to go back and watch it another night. So community theaters do this play. It is an awesome play to do. Um, and 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 yeah, that's, that's, that's the excitement of this play is you – you get blown away in the last 10 pages of the play. And then you try to re reform what you thought was happening the whole time. Yeah. So, it, it's a, it's an awesome play. What a privilege to get to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, let's continue the conversation with you. Let's talk with you all out there in, in podcast land. As you read this play, uh, watch this play are in this play. We would love to continue to have this conversation with you and through your eyes as well, because just from Jacob and I's perspective, there's so many different assumptions by the end of the play that we all get to talk around. So if you have some of those assumptions or thoughts or theories, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Username is at NoScriptPodcast on all of those platforms. We also have an email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And we love to keep having this conversation with you on the interwebs. That's right. If you like this episode, if you liked some of our other episodes, please share them on social media. It's a huge help when you help us help other people learn about No Script. So please <laughs> yeah, do that. Um, you can find our podcast on Podbean where it's hosted on uh, where else, Jackson? On Spotify, Spotify on Apple Podcasts, and iTunes. Google Play. I got it. Yeah. Um, you can also find a link to each new episode every Monday on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, until next time when we're talking about another play, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script. We'll see ya.